Welcome to Montrose Bible Church. We're so glad you've chosen to join us as Pastor Matt and other church leaders challenge us with a message from God's Word. This morning we continue our sermon series from the book of Matthew as Jesus continues his ministry in the southern portion of Galilee. Now, while up north, Christ traveled all throughout the region, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, the healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness among the people, leaving everyone in his audience astounded, astonished, and amazed. The crowds were amazed at the authority of his teaching. The men were amazed that even the winds and the seas would obey him. The disciples were amazed by the size of the multitude that gathered at his feet. At this point in Christ's ministries, the masses were enthralled with him. And they hung on his every word. Well, even the unbelief in his hometown couldn't stop the momentum of this movement. And news of his magnificence was spreading far and wide. Turn with me, if you will, to Matthew chapter 14. And follow along as we read God's word together, beginning in verse 1. Matthew chapter 14, verse 1. At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard the news about Jesus. And said to his servants, this is John the Baptist. He has risen from the dead. And that is why miraculous powers are at work in him. For when Herod had John arrested, he bound him and put him in prison because of Herodias, the wife of his brother Philip. For John had been saying to him, it is not lawful for you to have her. Although Herod wanted to put him to death, he feared the crowd because they regarded John as a prophet. But when Herod's birthday came, the daughter of Herodias danced before them and pleased Herod, so much that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she asked. Having been prompted by her mother, she said, Give me here on a platter the head of John the Baptist. Although he was grieved, The king commanded it to be given because of his oaths and because of his dinner guests. He sent and had John beheaded in the prison. And his head was brought on a platter and given to the girl, and she brought it to her mother. His disciples came and took away the body and buried it, and they went and reported to Jesus. May God bless the reading of his word. As the gospel continued to move through the towns and villages of lower Galilee now, a certain energy was building. And not only were the religious people talking about this Jesus of Nazareth, he garnered attention from the highest seated government officials as well. In particular, the family of Herods had developed an interest in this miracle-working carpenter. Now, I imagine many of you are familiar with that name, Herod. For not one, but two men in Scripture named Herod, 
are instrumental in the narrative of Christ. The first, who we refer to as Herod the Great, ruled over Palestine as a vassal king of the Roman Empire from 37 to 4 BC. It was this Herod who is mentioned in the account of Jesus' birth. Upon Herod the Great's death, however, his kingdom was divided into smaller regions and given to his sons. Judea, Idumea, and Samaria went to Archelaus. Ituria and Trachonitis were ruled by Herod Philip II. And the regions of Galilee and Perea came under the governance of Herod Antipas, the subject of this morning's text. And though his father ruled at the time of Christ's birth, this Herod is the one present at his death. Though people commonly refer to him as King Herod, He's actually not a king at all, but a tetrarch, a governor of sorts, put in place by Roman authority. And so we have in this most pivotal time in all of history, in this most pivotal of all places, Herod of Antipas becomes a central figure in the annals of Galilee's two most famous prophets, John the Baptist and Jesus the Christ. And though he would not meet Jesus face to face for quite some time, his relationship with John had become extremely personal by the time we read of him here in chapter 14, with all the intrigue of a popular novel. And as Herod reflects on their interaction, well, we realize that his response to matters of faith is similar to the view of many skeptics still today. First, we recognize that the thought of retribution causes fear. We'll take a look back at verse 1. At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard the news about Jesus. He said to his servants, this is John the Baptist. He has risen from the dead, and that is why miraculous powers are at work in him. Now, evidently, word about the ministry of Jesus and his apostles was spreading all throughout the region of Galilee very quickly at this particular point in history. Despite the rejection of those in his hometown of Nazareth, people are still being healed. Demons are still being cast out. Waves are still being stopped in their tracks. And this movement has become the talk not just of the town, but of the entire territory. And because the name of Jesus had become so well-known, Herod was all but forced to pay attention. After all, the kind of popularity swirling around Nazareth at this time, it was rather unique. I mean, something you would only see once or twice in your entire lifetime. Yeah, but... Herod had just seen an uproar equal to it only a year or two before as the people of Israel stormed after John the Baptist in the middle of the Judean wilderness. In fact, Herod is convinced that this new prophet on the scene is the old one in a resurrected 
body. And that's what he says to those serving in his court. Oh, this one that they are talking about. Never mind the name Jesus. This is really John the Baptist. He has risen from the dead. And that's why he's able to perform such miracles. Now understand, friends, this is not Herod's in-the-moment hypothesis. This is Herod's never-going-away fear that John the Baptist has come back to haunt him. In fact, in the ancient world, that's what resurrection almost always signified. Impending judgment for those who had wronged some individual during their lifetime. According to Mark's account, Herod's servants tried immediately to allay his concerns by telling him that the one performing miracles was Elijah or some other prophet who had come. But the Tetrarch was convinced. The man that he heard so much about was none other than his old nemesis, John, who had come back from the dead for the sake of vengeance. John, whom I beheaded, has risen, he cried, and he's coming after me. What guilt Herod must have felt to think that someone would come after him post-mortem as a payback for his offense? He must be overwhelmed by guilt. And in that, he is not alone. People today are plagued by this notion that someday their sins will return to them. Either in this life or the next. It is a most unsettling reality indeed. That whatever crimes you have committed, whatever evils you have perpetrated, whatever wrongs you have done, that eventually they come back on your own head. As we read in the Psalms, the Lord has made himself known. He has executed judgment in the work of his own hands. The wicked is snared. The one who has dug a pit and hollowed it out has fallen into the hole which he made. His mischief will return upon his own head and his violence will descend upon his own pates. The Lord has brought back their wickedness upon them and will destroy them in their own evil. There is... No doubt, friends, that retribution causes great anxiety and tremendous fear. Because even if people aren't certain where it might come from in the future, we all know that there will be an accounting one day for the things that we have done. Do you see? In the life of Herod, well, the thought of retribution causes fear 
But not only that, we also find that the offer of rebuke causes outrage. Take a look back at verse 3 now as we get the backstory undergirding Herod's fear. When Herod had John arrested, he bound him and put him in prison because of Herodias, the wife of his brother Philip. For John had been saying to him, it is not lawful for you to have her. Although Herod wanted to put him to death, he feared the crowd because they regarded John as a prophet. Well, here we see why Herod was so paranoid about John returning in revenge. Because while John was alive, the two of them had an intense struggle, primarily over this issue of Herod's marriage. Now, from the tenor of the text, we find that his new wife, Herodias, was just as offended as Herod himself because John rebuked the both of them over the nature of their relationship. Specifically, he called Herod out for taking his brother's wife. Now, evidently, Herodias was first married to Herod's brother, Philip. Yeah, but Herod Antipas had more territory. Herod Antipas had more influence. Herod Antipas was more powerful than Philip. So Herod Antipas took Herodias for himself. An act that caused John the Baptist to respond. This marriage is wrong, he told them. It's unlawful. And it needs to be annulled. See, in John's mind, a governor should adhere to the laws of the land he's governing. And since Herod was ruling amongst the people of Israel, their laws should be upheld. Well, according to Leviticus chapter 20, the man who has relations with his brother's wife is abhorrent and Wife-stealing of this sort, well, that was expressly forbidden. And not only was there the violation of Jewish law to consider, secular society would have condemned this relationship as adulterous as well. Yeah, but Herod is above the law, isn't he? He does what he pleases, Right or wrong, because, well, who would dare tell him otherwise? Would you? Put your life at risk to tell him the truth? I mean, most of us wouldn't even want to be inconvenienced by such a thing, let alone imprisoned. But John, like the prophets of old, confronted sin. He called for repentance among the people of Israel and in the world around her. Over the years, John the Baptist rebuked some of the most powerful people in all of Galilee. And as you can imagine, those people didn't like it. Herodias wanted him dead on the spot because he spoke against their lewd behavior. 
And Herod, for fear of the crowds, took a slightly milder approach and had him arrested and thrown in his dungeon. Now we look at this situation from the outside and we think, man, these people are crazy. And granted, they are. (laughs) But we need to realize that oftentimes we react to correction of this sort in the exact same way. You know, it's been interesting over the past 10 years now, the responses that I get when calling people out on their sin. Seems I can yell as loud as I want to from behind this pulpit. People say, preach on, brother, you've got it. (laughs) Until, until the message brings personal rebuke. And then how the tune changes. You know, I'm not sure we should preach on that subject again, Pastor. Maybe a softer approach would be better when discussing this kind of sin. Truth is, whether in first century Galilee or 21st century Montrose, people don't like to be rebuked. And it makes us want to strike back at the person doing the speaking. But man, do we need this in our lives? You can surround yourself with people who will nod their head in agreement with you all the time, who will tell you that everything you're doing is exactly what you should do. And you'll avoid conflict and you'll feel good about yourself. But you will never be rid of sin. You will never move forward in sanctification. You will never grow in your walk with Christ. Until you are like him, there are things in your life that need to change, as there are in mine. I don't need a bunch of yes men at my beck and call, like the people in Herod's court, saying, oh yeah, your sister-in-law, that's a good idea. Whatever your little heart desires, No. That doesn't help any of us become more godly. No, I need somebody that has the guts to say to me, Matt, you got to stop this. And you got to change that. And you better temper that other thing over there. I might not like it, but I need it. And so, too, do all of you. As the writer of Hebrews says, all discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful. It's upsetting. It's difficult. It's hard to hear. Yet to those who have been trained by it, afterwards, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. All Herod could see out of the mouth of John was the rebuke, the difficult words, the hard-to-swallow truth. He never realized for one second that John was trying to bless Herod (laughs) by speaking some truth into his life. Rather than receive that, Herod and Herodias flipped over it kicking against the goads of admonition because 
No one gets to tell me what I can or can't do. Such is the case for the majority of people living today. That in the words of Norman Peale, they would rather be ruined by praise than saved by criticism. And friends, the average churchgoer is no different. They refuse to be corrected. And I'm sorry to tell you, but there is no greater obstacle to growth in the Christian faith than that. Are you there? The thought of retribution causes fear. The offer of rebuke causes outrage. And the recognition of sin causes sorrow. Take a look back at verse 6. When Herod's birthday came, the daughter of Herodias danced before them and pleased Herod. So much that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she asked. Having been prompted by her mother, she said, Give me here on a platter the head of John the Baptist. And Herod was grieved. Now, despite John's message of rebuke earlier, Herod continued down the road of sin and seduction, allowing his stepdaughter slash niece to perform a dance of erotica in front of his house guests. Well, to be fair, this may not have been fully his idea. No, her mother Herodias probably planning this for some time in hopes that she might use the circumstance to kill that meddling prophet just yet. Now, because Salome, that is his stepdaughter's name, because Salome delighted Herod with her suggestive performance, he offered her a token of appreciation. Whatever you want, he said. I'll give it to you as a reward for your Routine. Now, she could have asked for anything. Up to half of Herod's kingdom, as we read in the parallel account. But instead of jewels, instead of treasures, instead of territory, Salome and her mother were so offended by the prophet's chastisement. Now, they forgo all of those other possible prizes, and ask instead for the head of John the Baptist served up to them on a silver platter. Well, immediately upon hearing their request, Herod is grieved. From the Greek word elupethe, meaning saddened, heavy of heart, and in extreme sorrow. You say, why is Herod so distraught? Well, for the same reason that unbelievers come to regret their sin today. Because they recognize that the sin that was so very enticing moments ago had just enslaved them. 
like that. You know, I remember several years ago in a classroom, I was sitting with a former meth addict. He shared a powerful testimony of deliverance from substance abuse. That kind of thing is so very foreign to me, I couldn't really put all the pieces together until afterward I had a chance to sit down with him at lunch and I asked him in as gentle a way as I could about some of that lifestyle that he had been associated with. And I'll never forget what he told me. He said, man, it was awesome for the first two weeks. And then it destroyed the next six years of my life. Now, we often paint a caricature of people in sin, how they delight in it, how they revel in it, how they bask in its glow. But even if it starts out that way, that is not how the unredeemed would describe their life of iniquity if they were telling the honest truth. The adulterer has fun for a night and then he watches his whole world fall to ruin. The addict feels high in a moment and then wallows in regret for years. The murderer feels a temporary sense of vengeance only to be crushed by guilt for the rest of their lifetime. So it was with Herod. Here is the most powerful man in the room, without question. And he can do nothing but the bidding of a stepdaughter and a second-hand wife. His sin corrupted the entire household, and he was now being churned up by it as the moments pass. His sin had come full circle, you see. Luring him with its sordid pleasures the one minute, trapping him against his will the next. I mean, that's why he was so sad. Because even in a man this evil, there is a God-given sense of right and wrong. And Herod knows the difference. He didn't always choose right, granted, but he knew the difference, just as you and I do today. He knows killing John is wrong, and he knows there will be hell to pay for it if he follows through. That's why he's plagued by this idea that John's going to return to him and haunt him throughout his days. And yet, even as he is faced with that possibility, even as he contemplates the error of his ways, even then, Herod can't find his way out of sin. As we're told in verse 9, although he was grieved, the king commanded it to be given because of his oaths and because of his dinner guests. He sent and had John beheaded in the prison and his head was brought on a platter and given to the girl and she brought it to her mother. And then his disciples came and took away the body and buried it, went and reported these things to Jesus. 
Herod was sad because he didn't want to kill John, certainly not in this way. Even a man like Herod, whose father murdered babies, who's allowed his stepdaughter to strip down in front of his guests, whose wickedness and depravity are almost beyond compare, even he recognizes that this now is taking it too far. Yeah, and that's worth noting, I suppose, that Herod would come to that realization. But the mere recognition of sin is not enough. The big question still remains. What is he going to do about that sin now that he knows? That answer will reveal the true condition of his heart as it will for us. Now, to this point, Herod has seen the sin. Herod has had sorrow for the sin. But he never progressed any further beyond that. After all, there is no record of him confessing his sin, being shamed by his sin, coming to a hatred of his sin, or turning away from his sin. Instead, he gave in to it because he didn't want to appear weak, because he didn't want to appear uneasy, because he didn't want to appear less of a man in front of his house guests. He favored his pride over his remorse. And he ordered the execution of a man he knew should not be put to death. No wonder he's haunted by the thought that John the Baptist will return to him. He'll be plagued by that his whole life. He just put to death a prophet of God who even if he didn't fully understand his identity, according to Mark's account, he recognized that John was holy and righteous. And even part of him enjoyed listening to the prophetic word. He just put him to death. Even though he was sorry about it, even though he had a momentary sense of regret over it. And he never moved beyond that to address the sin in his life. In fact, just a year or two later, the same Herod of Antipas would look not at John the Baptist, but at Christ. And after treating him with contempt and mocking him, dressed him in a gorgeous robe and sent him back to Pilate for his crucifixion. See, it's not just recognizing sin that reveals everything about you. It's your response to sin. If the Spirit has blessed you with an understanding of how you have done wrong and has moved you to some form of regret or sorrow, as we saw in the case of Herod, don't stop there and go on sinning tomorrow. Confess it. Hate it. And turn away from it. Herod 
would not. And he was plagued for the rest of his life, knowing that judgment was coming after him. A judgment that is inescapable for those who oppose the prophets of God. And not only, friends, was he continually haunted by this thought. Not only was he afraid, probably woke up in the middle of the night, worried about what was to come to him tomorrow. Not only that. In this entire account, Herod missed Jesus. To go back to verse 1, the rumors that were rumbling around were about Jesus. But he was so plagued by guilt over John the Baptist, he couldn't see it. He misappropriated the whole thing and lost any chance that he had at redemption. Friends, when we plug our ears to the people who are speaking truth into our lives, when we walk out of the doors of the church because someone dared rebuke us, we're going to be haunted by it. And we're going to miss Jesus in the process. Don't let that happen to you. Let this be a lesson to all of us. All of us who need desperately to see and listen to Christ. Yeah? Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you that there are people bold enough in our lives to speak the truth. The truth that ultimately comes from you because all truth does. Thankful for this example we see in John the Baptist who had the courage to speak out when there was wrongs. And Lord, I pray that you would help us to be more sensitive to those things. Lord, that we put down our pride for a moment and hear the correction because there are things that need to change in our lives. We acknowledge that humbly before you. We are not where we all should be. None of us are. We don't look exactly like your son Jesus today. None of us do. There are things that need to change. Thank you for bringing voices into our lives, for bringing the truth of Scripture into our lives that can correct us and challenge us on those things. Bring us the conviction. Help us respond appropriately that we might not only be convicted and sorrowful, but that we might turn from our sin back to you. Thank you for this time. Continue to be exalted in it, we pray. Amen and amen. Thank you for joining us. I trust you've been blessed by the study of God's Word. For more information about Montrose Bible Church, visit our website, montrosebiblechurch.org.